This evening, we're going to be taking a look at Luke chapter 22, verses 63 to 71, and we're going to be talking about the forgiveness that Christ offers, specifically related to forgiveness that He gives us even if we struggle to forgive ourselves. I know that probably most of us would say that offering or extending forgiveness can at times be a challenging thing to do, uh, but sometimes we're able to do that a little bit better for others than we're even able to do that for ourselves. And I want to show you several groups of people in this portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at that even though we would look at what they did and we would say, all right, that was despicable, that was terrible, even they could have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. So if you would take your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 22, and I'll read for us uh, starting at verse 63 of Luke 22. This is what it states. It says, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege to be able to look at this brief portion of Scripture together tonight as we think about the fact that your Son, Jesus Christ, was crucified on our behalf. And we just commit this time to you now, Lord. We pray that you'd help us to think about all that you endured so that our sin could be atoned for. And we pray, Father, that even now you'd prepare our hearts to partake of communion together in just a little while with these truths fresh on our minds. And we commit this time to your care. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the events leading up to Christ's crucifixion, and that's the, in the portion of Scripture we're looking at tonight, these are events leading up to that event. So these events leading up to Christ's crucifixion, when we read these things, when we think about these things, they evoke emotion. You can't help but feel emotional when you take a look at these things in the gospel. When we observe the kindness that Christ had been showing to people, and then we read about his compassion, and then we read about the fact that he healed people, and then he taught people, and he did miracles among the people. I think when we read about those things, and then we look at a portion of scripture like this, we struggle to understand why anyone would have wanted to harm him, let alone put him to death, but yet that's what we see taking place in this portion of Scripture. But again, along with those who, uh, who loved Jesus, there were many people during that era who absolutely despised him. They couldn't stand him. They hated him. They hated the attention that he was getting. They hated the claims that he was making about himself. They resented the ways that he would challenge their false teaching, they particularly resented the ways that Jesus would challenge their hypocrisy 
And in many respects, he would do so in very public ways, so that obviously didn't uh, endear some of these critics to him uh, very, very much. And some whose hearts were hardened, the Scripture makes it clear that they were adamantly opposed to him being recognized as the Messiah, particularly since he didn't fit with their preconceived notions of what they thought the Messiah was going to look like. And that's very much at play in the portion of Scripture that we just read together. So the ways in which Jesus was treated, not only in his crucifixion, but also in the actions that led up to that event, we would say those things are despicable. I would certainly say that those are things that are despicable. The way that he was treated, particularly after showing all that kindness and compassion and to help to so many people that he was helping and that he was assisting... These, this treatment was despicable, but, but amazingly, it was forgivable. And that's what I want to focus on this evening. There was nothing that happened to Jesus during this period of time that surprised him. None of this was a shock to him. He knew these things were going to take place, and yet for the, the sake of the good that he knew would come from it, from his suffering, from his death, he knew good would come from, from it. So he willingly endured the disrespect that was given to him or or shown to him. He willingly endured the torment that he was put through. And, um, And he did this on behalf of humanity, even on behalf, we would say, of those who were doing this to him. On the cross, Christ atoned for our sin with the goal that we would be forgiven. And with the goal that we would be cleansed of our sin. So this evening, we pause, as we do every year at this period of time, we pause to partake of communion in a few moments, but we also pause to just think about the nature of Christ's crucifixion. And this evening, as we're doing those things, we're going to be taking time specifically to just look at some of the ways Christ was treated in the hours leading up to that experience. And we're going to consider the fact that Christ was willing to forgive His tormentors of the ways that they were treating him. And I think it's amazing to consider when we look at the nature of the treatment that he was receiving. And one of the things that Christ displays to us, and we see this action taking place here in this portion of Scripture, but we also see this in the nature and heart of Christ and in his teaching, but he shows us that he can forgive, that Jesus can forgive those who have mocked him. Christ can forgive those who have mocked him. Let me reread verse 63 down to verse 65. It says this, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now let's pause there for just a moment. Um, I think we could all probably agree that mockery is not a pleasant experience. You ever had that experience where you've been mocked by somebody? Now, sometimes it's our friends that might tease us a little bit, or, or uh, maybe even family members, or maybe siblings. Probably you could think back to, when you think of being mocked, I'm sure that at least some of your memories of being mocked probably took place during your childhood. Isn't that kind of one of the primary times of life where we experience mockery? Isn't that one of the seasons of life where that's kind of like a go-to event? You know, that people are just mocked, sometimes incessantly. It tends to be one of the primary things that children, or at least those with a childish perspective, sometimes engage in. And I'll also say this, mockery is one of Satan's go-to tactics. Loves to engage in mockery. He uses it against the followers of Christ, and he, he uses that, by the way, against you and against me to try and discourage and depress the people of God 
as they're seeking to follow the Lord. But he also makes mockery uh, of the Lord. He mocks the Lord. And as he mocks the Lord, he makes a point to mock the family of God. It's one of Satan's go-to strategies. And when you look at the portion of Scripture that we're in tonight, you can see leading up to his crucifixion, we're told here that Jesus was beaten by the men who were holding him in custody. And as they were inflicting physical pain on him, they also uh, attempted to inflict emotional pain on him through mockery. Now, we're told a few of the things that they said in the midst of that mockery, but to be honest, I'm glad that that most of what they said is not recorded in Scripture because I wouldn't want to read some of the vile things that these men happened to say to Christ or about Christ. We're told here that they said many other things against him and blasphemed him by speaking in a profane way about him, but they were mocking him. And they were hurting him. They were beating him. They were trying to hurt him physically. They were also trying to hurt him emotionally. And related to this, let me also say this. And I wonder if maybe you've thought of this uh, as well. But would you agree that the things we're entertained by tend to reveal a lot about our character? Would you agree with that statement? The things that entertain me, I think, would convey something about my character. The things that would entertain you, I think, would convey something about your character. These are things that um, I think are almost, you know, we could say that's like a universally true statement, right? And sadly, one of the biggest indicators that our hearts are enmeshed with sin is the fact that at times we can find the suffering of others amusing or entertaining, that the human heart has the capacity to be entertained by the suffering of somebody else. And in this context here, we can see that those who were holding Jesus in custody, they were clearly amused by his suffering. It amused them. They were entertained by the suffering of Christ. They even added to the humiliation that Christ was experiencing, we're told here, by blindfolding him. And we're told that when they blindfolded him, they hit him. And then they would ask him to prophesy which one of them had hit him. So this is what's going on. Mockery, humiliation, physical injury, and they're entertained by all of it. They're entertained by watching him suffer. But amazingly, this mockery, And this despicable treatment that Christ is enduring in this particular moment, it's not beyond Christ's ability to forgive. Consider for just a moment some of the counsel that Christ has also given to us related to to when we endure mockery or similar treatment because of our association with Him in particular. Look at what Scripture tells us in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. There it says this, Blessed are you, and by the way, these are the words of Christ. So Christ is saying these words. He's teaching, it's part of his Sermon on the Mount. And he's communicating this with the idea that we as his followers would understand these things as we go about our day-to-day life following him. But he says in Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Christ is trying to give some context. If you desire to be a a follower of Christ who's maturing in your faith, you desire to be somebody who is very open about your faith in Christ, do not be surprised if you too are mocked. 
And I'm mentioning this to all ages, but I'm looking around this room and I'm seeing some of you who are in, in school right now. Elementary school, middle school, high school, college, early in your work years, new parents, those of you that are older, it's, it's universally true. It's something that at every season of your life, there's probably going to be somebody that if you decide to be open about your faith in Christ, if you wear that openly, if that becomes known about you, do not be surprised if at times you are mocked. Jesus said to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, this is how the prophets of the Old Testament, that's how they were treated. And we could see in Christ's suffering leading up to his crucifixion, what, what does he endure? He endures mockery, and he endures beating, and he endures even you know blasphemy. And he tells us, don't be surprised if you're treated in the same way. If you desire to follow Christ, don't be surprised if you're treated in the same way. In fact, when you look at what Christ says there, he teaches us what? He teaches us to rejoice when people mock us or speak evil against us because of our relationship with him. Does anyone here like Johnny Cash? I like Johnny Cash. He had a very simple wardrobe. I think I had to adopt that. You know, he just would wear black. It's kind of like you wake up every day and you'd look and be like, what should I wear? How about a black shirt, black pants, and a black coat? What goes with that? Black boots. You'd wear that every day, right? The man in black, Johnny Cash. But I'm paraphrasing this, but he once said this. He said, you know, if I'm ever put on trial for being a Christian, I hope there's enough evidence to convict me. And I always thought that was a cool statement. I don't think he's the only person that's ever said that. You know, if I'm ever put on trial for being a Christian, I hope there's enough evidence to convict me. But I like that statement in light of what Christ says here in this portion of Scripture, in Matthew chapter 5, and also what he demonstrates in our our primary Scripture tonight, because he's demonstrating the fact that there should be no secret about what side we're on. There should be no secret about our allegiance to Christ. There should be no secret about the fact that we love Him and that He's the Lord of our lives. And so Jesus is teaching us here to rejoice when people mock us and to rejoice when people speak evil against us because of our relationship with Him. As He was treated, so too we can expect to be treated, particularly if we're open about our faith and we take the risk to speak of Him publicly or make Christ-like lifestyle choices that can be counter to the culture in which we live in. So now, when you read these events, you know, when you take a look at these things here in Luke chapter 22, when you look at the things that are, are contained in what Christ is enduring, and when we look even at Matthew chapter 5 as kind of a supporting scripture, but when you read about these things, what comes to your mind? What are some of the things that, that your mind starts dwelling on when you look at these things? Do you feel compassion for Christ? You know, particularly when you realize not only are they mocking him, but they're also blindfolding him and hitting him and then making jokes about it. So on one, in one sense, do you feel compassion for him when you watch him endure this? I think that's one of the th- ways in which my heart's triggered as I look at a portion of Scripture like this, realizing that he's doing all of that for us, right? I'm looking at this in a personal way. I'm saying, all right, Lord, you endured that mockery and that beating for me, and I shouldn't treat it casually or trivially, and that's why we've carved out time even tonight to acknowledge it and recognize it. But what do we think about? You know, so do we feel compassion when we look at this? Or how about this? You know, as we're talking about mockery. Did anyone, and don't say this out loud, just kind of think about this in your own head, but I wonder if any of us gathered here this evening started thinking about those that have mocked us that at times we've struggled to forgive. It wouldn't surprise me if, if someone shared you know, with me, 
Yeah, you know, as I looked at that, I, I kind of thought about those that I've endured mocking from. I've kind of thought about the fact that it's been very difficult for me to forgive their mockery. Or I, I, I even wonder, as we look at this portion of Scripture, if there are any of us that maybe feel a twinge of regret over times when we would say, maybe I personally mocked Christ at an earlier season of life or a different season of life. Maybe I'm one of those that have personally mocked Christ. And maybe we find ourselves thinking about like some combination of all three of those. Some compassion, wrestling with forgiveness, a twinge of regret over maybe something we say have said, maybe even just in jest, that we feel was along the lines of mockery. But I bring that up just by way of starters as we look at this portion of Scripture tonight, because Jesus can forgive those who have mocked Him. And He also offers us His power to be able to forgive those who have mocked us as well. He can forgive those who have mocked Him. And He grants you, through faith, His power to forgive those who have mocked you. Luke chapter 22 goes on. And it shows us that Jesus can also forgive those who once failed to believe in Him. Now, it doesn't get to the forgiveness here, but when you know the outcome of the story, you realize that the people that failed to believe in Him here could have been forgiven if they came to faith in Christ later on. But look at what it says in verses 66-68 to in Luke chapter 22. There it says this, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. So let's pause there for just a moment. The events being described in this passage, starting with Luke 22, verse 66, so the the verses we just read right there, these now take place on Friday. This is where Friday starts in Luke's narrative. Right there at that cutoff. This is now the Friday part. The day that Christ was crucified. So we see at daybreak the things that are taking place here. That day that He's eventually crucified. And we're told here that at daybreak, the assembly of the elders, they gather together. And this assembly was known as the Sanhedrin. And what the Sanhedrin was, it was the supreme council of the Jews, and it was led by the high priest. And they would make very important um Spiritual decisions, they would also make very important judicial decisions in like the civic realm uh, among uh, the Jewish people. And it was considered unlawful to hold a trial at night. So that's why they waited until day to have this sham trial uh, where their intent was very much to just condemn Jesus. That was their plan, to condemn him. So they wait for daybreak, and now they have this trial here, because that keeps with the code, that keeps with the law. And even before looking at the details of these verses, I think it's also important for me to mention something else that that I find interesting in this portion of Scripture that's also common in our very day, and it's been common throughout the course of human history. But the thing that I notice when I look at portions of Scripture like this, and, and even in our time, There are people who like to be considered religious and holy in Christ's time, in our time, but their hearts are quite far from the Lord. So there are people that like to give the external appearance of righteousness who have hearts that are very far from the Lord, 
And I think that that's because it can be very easy for us to focus on our external appearance, how we look to one another, and to focus on the keeping of customs and to focus on the keeping of traditions without examining our hearts without examining whether or not we are sensitive to the leading of the Lord and whether we're sensitive to actually hearing His voice. And I think that's very much at play in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at tonight. That's what these men very much are struggling with. That's the kind of dilemma that I see here in this passage. Because you have this this group of people who've been entrusted with important roles of spiritual leadership, but yet they have more faith in the work of their hands than they do in the Lord who had created them, and who was right there attempting to speak to them. Their ears were not in tune with the voice of God. And by the way, when we look at our own lives, I mean, I know that I can very, very clearly and distinctly point to certain seasons of my life where I would say, yeah, you know what, during that season of my life, my ears were not in tune with the voice of God. And probably if you do some self-analysis, you could probably look to seasons of your life where you'd say, yeah, you know what, that is not a season I want to go back to because that was a season of my life where my ears were not attuned to listening to the voice of God. And that's very much where these leaders were at at this particular point. Their spiritual eyes were blind. Their spiritual ears were clogged up. The Lord of all creation was right there in front of them in bodily form. And all they wanted to do was bring accusation against Him. They failed to believe in Him. They failed to trust in Him. And so instead of believing in Him, what they do is they question Him. They question Him. They ask Him to tell, him, to tell them if He was indeed the Christ. That's what they ask. Tell us, are you, know, are you the Christ? Tell us. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Now keep in mind their, their concern, or their, you know, as they're asking these things, it wasn't to actually find out whether or not that claim was valid. They, they, didn't clear, they, didn't, they didn't care if that claim was valid. They didn't believe it was valid. Their mind was already made up on it. All they were trying to do in this moment was to trap Jesus in something that He might say so that they could use it against Him in some way in a legal sense. They just wanted to trap Him in His words so that they could use it against Him. And I think one of the most fascinating things, and maybe you've noticed this too when you've read through the Gospels, but one of the things that, that I find most fascinating when I read through the Gospels is the manner in which Jesus would respond to those who hated Him. Now think about some of the people in your life that have given you the most grief, just for a quick moment, alright? Think about those special people. It's probably good to think about those people for a, a moment or two before we partake of communion, right? Because we're called to be forgiving people and we want our hearts right with the Lord even you know, before we partake of communion. But there are people in my life that I would say have been my haters or my detractors or my critics or whatever. And um, you know, I've got those people, you've got those people. Uh, unfortunately, not everyone in this world likes you. Unfortunately, not everyone in this world likes me. It is what it is. And, um, and there are people that um, probably at times have even behaved in a manner toward you that you would say, yeah, that's, that's along the lines of, e- of even attacking me. And when you look at what ha- is happening here with Christ, you have these people who are attacking Him verbally and physically. They hate Him. They don't believe in Him. And I'm fascinated with how He responds to them. So I always think about this, you know, not just from Christ's perspective here, but also in a personal application kind of way. How do you respond to people that treat you in such a manner like this? Because we want our response in this world to be Christ-like, don't we? When people treat you in a way that's unsavory or despicable or unfavorable or however you want to say it, or just downright mean, how do we respond to them? How do we treat them? 
So I find it fascinating to see how Christ did it, what He did. And in this portion of Scripture, He responds to them in a similar way to how, he, how we could see Him responding to, to those that hated Him in other portions of Scripture with introspective questions and comments that force them to think a little bit deeper. We don't see Christ getting overly defensive here, do we? We see Him pointing out some things that they're missing here, and He responds with a very interesting group of statements here. But He says, if I tell you... So they're asking Him this question in an accusatory way, and He doesn't give them right away the answer that they want, although eventually here He's going to because they're going to use His words against Him. But at first He says... You know, they're saying to him, if you are the Christ, tell us, right? Now, again, they don't really want to know that answer. They just want to accuse him. If you are the Christ, tell us. If you are the Christ, tell us. Tell us. And could you just see their mean faces? Tell us. Tell us, right? Tell us. And he says to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. So he starts off with that, right? He's like, if I tell you, you will not believe. And I can imagine some of them, as he's saying this, saying like, oh, this guy drives me nuts. Like he's going to do one of those things where like we have to start thinking about ourselves. It's like, no, 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 stop, you know, just stop, right? But I could tell, like you could tell like his answers irritate them because it forces them to think about themselves a little bit. If I tell you, you will not believe. And then he goes on from there and he says, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Because if you remember earlier in the Gospels, they would say certain things to him and he would say, all right, let me also ask you a question. If you answer my question, I'll tell you. And they'd, be, and they'd try and cop out, and they'd be like, oh, well, we don't know. And he's like, all right, well, then I'm not going to tell you. And so he says, if I tell you, you won't believe, right? If I tell you, you will not believe, the Scripture literally says. And he says, and if I ask you, you will not answer. So this conversation is going to go nowhere. You will not listen. You have no intent to actually listen to what I'm saying to you. Your hearts are closed. Jesus, what He's doing here in this portion of Scripture, He's stating a very obvious fact that displayed that He knew exactly what was going on in their hearts. He knew that if He claimed to be the Christ, which obviously He is, they would not believe that statement. They would not believe that claim. And based on the ways that He had questioned them in previous encounters, He knew that they would not bother to answer Him if He asked them probing questions about their beliefs in this context, in this particular context either. But amazingly, you know, when you look at something like this, I mean, is this not the epitome of a hard heart? If you could have the Lord of all creation, our Savior, our Messiah, our King, right there in front of your face and still not believe. Even in the midst, keep in mind what's happened right, right, before, right before this. He's raised Lazarus to the dead with many witnesses and all sorts of people testifying to this fact and yet they still don't believe. He's done other miracles that were widely attested, and they still don't believe. And amazingly, this level of hard-hearted disbelief is also something that, can, that it can be forgiven. This kind of disbelief, it can be forgiven. Meaning, as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see who Jesus is, we begin to understand that He is who He says He is. And our hard hearts, they melt within us. And we repent of our unbelief. 
and lay hold of Christ's offer to be our Savior and our Rescuer and our Redeemer, we can be forgiven of our past unbelief. These men could have been forgiven. They could have come to faith. They could have repented of their unbelief. By the way, what would you, what would you say? How would you answer if you were in this context and Christ asked you if you believed? Do you believe? Or if He simply asked you like this, if He said it like this, Who do you say I am? Who do you think I am? What do you claim? What's going on in here? Do you believe I'm God in the flesh, or do you believe I'm, I'm just a criminal that should be crucified for claiming divinity? This is what they were wrestling with. But Jesus can forgive those who once failed to believe Him. I didn't always believe Him. You didn't always believe Him. He forgave us, and he could, he could have forgiven them. If they repented of their unbelief and came to faith in Him, they could have been forgiven. One other thing that I think this Scripture points out that I think is worth noticing, and that's this. Jesus could also forgive those who once condemned Him. Look again at verse 69 down to verse 71. Verse 69, the Scripture says this, but from now on, as Jesus still speaking, He says, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now that's a very definitive statement, right? So look at what it says in verse 70. It says, So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And He said to them, You say that I am. By the way, notice when Christ references Himself in the I am sense. This is, this is a, an illusion. A very, it's, I mean, I don't even know I should call it an illusion. It's, it's, it's Him pointing to the fact that, you know, when in the Old Testament, what did the... What, you know, when God was asked, hey, what, you know, who should I say sent me? You know, when Moses is speaking to him, tell him I am has sent you. When Christ does this multiple times through the Gospels, what's he doing? He's saying, I'm pointing out to you verbally here that I am divine. I am God right here in front of you. And so they said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? They know what he's getting at here. They know he's pointing them right to that scripture from Exodus. They say, what further testimony do we need? We've heard, it, we've heard it ourselves from His own lips. They're like, all right, our work is done. We heard it ourselves from His own, from his own lips, right? Um, and so they're eager to condemn Him. They're eager to falsely accuse Him of blasphemy. But it's not blasphemy when you really are God in the flesh right there in front of them. I read a story the other day that I thought I'd share with you. And my understanding is that this is a true story, even though it entertained me when I read it. And it was about a man named John, but I promise you it wasn't, uh, it wasn't about me. I actually think this happened a little, uh, just under 30 years ago from, from, uh, when it seemed to be from. There was a man, his name was John, and he was driving home late one night, and he picked up a hitchhiker. And by the way, that's a bad idea, okay? So if you're considering doing that, um, you know, I have some new drivers in my family. If you're considering picking up a hitchhiker, universally a bad idea. But John picked up a hitchhiker that evening. And as they rode along, he began to feel a little bit suspicious of his passenger. And he had one of those cars that kind of had the wide front seat that we used to have. My first car, I had an Oldsmobile Cutlass Sierra, and it had a, a very, you know, three people could sit across the front. It was like having a love seat right there in your, in your you know, it was like a couch right there in the front of your car. It's the most comfortable car I ever had. Um, not reliable at all. Uh, but it was, uh, it was very comfy. And uh, this guy had one of those, like, those very large front seats, but in the middle seat, he had set his coat. 
And as they were driving, he kind of reached over because he was getting suspicious of the hitchhiker he picked up, and he wanted to see, wait a second, is my wallet still there in my coat? And he started feeling around, and he notices, my wallet's not there. And so he slammed on the brakes, and he ordered the hitchhiker to get out of the car, and he said, hand over the wallet immediately. Hand it over right now. And the hitchhiker was startled and scared and, and reached in his pocket and handed him a, the billfold. And then he gets home. And uh, after he drives off and he starts to tell his wife the story and his wife interrupts him and she says, oh, I forgot to tell you, um, did you know you left your wallet here this morning? I thought that was kind of funny because effectively he's just robbed the hitchhiker, right? Uh, you know, so he falsely accuses the guy, and the guy is terrified that he's getting robbed, and so he gives the guy his own wallet. He's like, give me the wallet. He's like, okay, here's my wallet. And then he leaves him stranded on the side of the road. And I, and I look at this portion of Scripture, and here you see accusation and condemnation being thrown at Jesus, but it's undeserved, and it's inaccurate. It's false. Christ was sinless. Christ had done nothing wrong. The entire case that the Sanhedrin is making against him, it was based on him telling the truth about his identity and them denying the truth of his claim. But not only did Jesus in this conversation confirm to them that he was the Christ, he also refers to himself by a title that's used elsewhere in Scripture. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. So please notice that in Luke 22. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, and he says he'd be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And he also is affirming that he's the Son of God in this portion of Scripture. So what Jesus, by the way, was doing here was pointing out to them that he was indeed the fulfillment of the prophecy given in Daniel chapter 7. Let me read the prophecy to you. It's in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, but it, there it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And what Christ was doing in referring to himself in this capacity to this group of people who were learned in the Scriptures was he was saying to them, by the way, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, I'm that Son of Man that Daniel was referring to in Daniel chapter 7 who will reign, who will have that glory, who will uh, oversee all the nations. And at this point, this group, instead of rejoicing over his appearing, the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 is right here in our midst. The Sanhedrin, at this point, they pounce. And they rejoice over the fact that now they've got an opportunity to condemn Jesus. So at this point, they consider their case all wrapped up. Because now they've, they've got the ammunition, they believe, to be able to accuse Jesus of the capital offense of blasphemy. Because clearly what he's saying equates him with God. So he's equating himself with God. And in their understanding, that's deserving of death. And I'll even say this, though. Even this condemnation is something that Jesus is more than capable to forgive. He's still capable to forgive them. They still could have experienced his forgiveness. 
They still could have repented of this disbelief. They could have repented of this condemnation and trusted in Him. But because they did not believe who He said He was, they also did not seem even remotely interested in experiencing the forgiveness that Christ offers. Let me say this as we finish up tonight. And as we prepare our hearts now to partake of communion together. Those who are conscious of their mockery or their disbelief or their condemnation of Christ also tend to be those who are most appreciative of His gift, of His offer to forgive them. Let me say that again. Those who are conscious of their mockery, conscious of their disbelief, conscious of their former condemnation of Christ, are also those who tend to be the most appreciative of His offer to forgive them. There's an interesting account given to us in Luke chapter 7 that shows what it's like to finally come to a spot where you appreciate the depth of the forgiveness of Christ. Look what it tells us in Luke 7 verse 47. It says this, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. By the way, at this point Christ is approached by a woman who has a reputation for being quite immoral in her context. He says, I'll reread it. He says in Luke 7, 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were, excuse me, then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She had gone from disbelief to belief. She was saved. She came to faith. If Jesus can forgive mockery, if Jesus can forgive disbelief, if He can forgive condemnation, as well as the many sins of this woman who had, who had lived a life known for immorality, right? That was her reputation in her context. Is there anything that we have endured that we cannot also forgive when we rely on the power of Christ to do so. Is there anything too great in your own life that we would say is just too great or too far beyond for Christ to forgive? Is there anything that we can't forgive ourselves of? You know, when we come to a mature understanding of the nature of the fact that Christ has indeed washed our sins away, and He's taken our condemnation upon Himself at the cross, doesn't it seem like a great way to waste your life if you spend your life self-condemning the entire time? Failing to forgive yourself? Never getting to that spot of spiritual maturity where you start to look at yourself the way the Lord looks at you? What a waste! That is such a waste. There's something that you've been condemning yourself over, even though you've repented of it, you've sought the Lord's cleansing, you've sought the Lord's forgiveness, He's granted it, and yet you still beat yourself up about it. You know what you've effectively done? You've effectively, at least in that moment, forgotten the work Christ accomplished for you on the cross. It's a little too far from your mind right now, and it needs to be brought back to your mind so you can start to see yourself the way Christ is seeing you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace, He said to that woman. Does He not say the same thing to us? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not go in anxiety. Not go in self-condemnation. Go in peace. 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In a moment, we're going to join together. We're going to partake of communion. In preparation of that, let me just usher maybe one more challenge to say this. Allow yourself to fully experience the forgiveness of Christ. Don't deny yourself this kind of blessing. Because Christ was mocked, and He was denied, and He was condemned, and He was crucified in order to offer this gift to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to look at these things this evening from Your Word. To be able to meditate on these truths, to be able to think about these things tonight in regard to all You endured leading up to Your crucifixion and all that You endured as You were crucified. Lord, we see people mocking You and not believing in You and condemning You when we look at this portion of Scripture And we are absolutely no different than those people. Scripture tells us that we lived as your enemies prior to your intervention in our lives. But we're grateful, Lord, that you have shown us your mercy. You've called us unto yourself. You've cleansed us of our sin. You've given us the opportunity to repent of our our disbelief. Now we have the privilege to come to you as men and women who recognize the forgiveness that you've offered. And Lord, we pray that we would recognize the depth of Your forgiveness as we extend forgiveness to others and as we also embrace the idea of forgiving ourselves. We want to understand this in a very deep and abiding abiding way, Lord, knowing that this is what You've secured for us. You endured condemnation. You endured mockery and beating and torture so that You could offer this gift to us. And You challenge us to, to go in peace, to live in Your peace. And so we pray for that peace for our minds and for our hearts. We pray for the privilege to be able to walk with You in this regard. Thank You for reminding us of these things this evening as we look at this portion of Your Word. We thank You for Your love and for Your goodness. Prepare our hearts now as we partake of communion, but also, Lord, we pray that You prepare our hearts as we seek to be men and women who follow You in every context of life. And as we seek to be men and women who forgive as we have been forgiven. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.